This is Soundstage founder Doug Schneider. You're listening to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast, your semi-regular deep dive into news, facts, opinions, and anecdotes about everything that really matters in the world of high-performance audio. Hosts Brent Butterworth and Dennis Berger have more than five decades worth of audio product testing experience and a few hours of podcasting experience as well. Now, here's Brent and Dennis. Hello, everyone. I'm Dennis Berger, editor of Soundstage Access. And I'm Brent Butterworth, editor of Soundstage Solo. And we both write for the Soundstage Network, which is a collection of nine microsites that cover all sorts of topics in audio. From Brent, you write about, like, what, $17 headphones up to headphones that cost thousands of dollars. We have very high-end sites. We have sites that cover connected audio. I write about high-value audio. So we cover everything pretty much across the board. But why are we here today, Dennis? We are here to talk about uh, what's interesting us in in the world of audio right now, including one topic that is sort of setting the audiophile world on fire right now, which is what's being dubbed MoFi gate. Um, We're only going to be able to scratch the surface here, but the the short version is there's been a bit of controversy about mobile fidelity and how they are producing their uh, vinyl records. So we're going to, we're going to dig into that and give our thoughts. Um, What do you want to talk about, man? So stereophile, you know, uh, leading high end audio magazine, publishes uh, on their website, they publish old reviews a lot of times that they did 30 years ago or so. Mm -hmm. And they published one that just shocked me. Uh, It's a a review that was published in 1991 by Robert Harley, and they just republished it. And it's of the Monitor Audio Studio 20 loudspeaker. And as I read it, it just made me realize how far speakers have come since then in every conceivable way so we're going to talk about that and i have some things to say so, <laughs> i am very and what surprised have we got? what are we what are we wrapping up with i want to dig into a story over on soundstage experience by james hale uh the title of mm-hmm. this is the iFi audio zen one signature and go bar open the door to charles lloyd's chapel Um, One of those products in particular, the Zen One Signature, is a DAC that I reviewed a few months back. Um, (laughs) After after having asked the question, why would anybody buy a DAC? Um, I went and bought a DAC. (laughs) <laughs> and it just so happened oh. to be the DAC that is discussed in this story. So we're going to dig into that a little bit and um, and talk about why. Cool. But before we do, we need to talk about MoFi Gate because I don't think we could be taken seriously as an audiophile podcast unless we dig into the topic that is um, setting the audiophile world on fire. People are calling it but, MoFi Gate. Whoa, whoa, you can whoa. Almost, whoa. Oh, just yeah? slow yeah? down a little okay, bit. Okay, hang on. What? Who said we want to be taken seriously <laughs> as an audiophile podcast? I didn't say that. <laughs> That's coming from you. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, Go ahead. No, well, I'm sorry. If, before if, I so rudely interrupt you with my idiotic comment. <laughs> no, no, you've got a good point there uh, because there's a lot in this that I think is being taken far too seriously. There are some other aspects of it that maybe aren't being taken seriously enough, but we're going to dig into it. It's being called MoFi Gate. I would almost be inclined to call it MoFi Apocalypse. Mm, wow. Um, <laughs> just because I'm tired of something gate, but um. 
this is there's a lot to unpack here. And again, as I said, we're only going to be able to scratch the surface, but let's start scratching it. So for a while now, there have been sort of rumors and rumblings and shots fired from Michael Fremer. It was a name that mm-hmm. many people in our hobby know. Um, big proponent of vinyl. The biggest proponent of vinyl. Let's give let's give credit where credit's due. He is the the sure. he has been the leading proponent of vinyl over the last thirty years. Sure. So and Mobile Fidelity for anyone who doesn't know, they produce uh, vinyl records, uh, SACDs, CDs that are that are targeted specifically at audiophiles. They're not creating their own music. They're re-releasing. Santana's Abraxas and Michael Jackson's Thriller and all of this. And so Michael Fremer has for a while now occasionally, I think, been sort of making these insinuations that he's heard from sources on the inside that um, this supposedly all analog process that Mobile Fidelity is known for, they were injecting digital into their production stream from time to time. Ooh. Um, yeah, following that up, uh, a gentleman known as Michael Esposito uh, with the Ingroove mm-hmm. uh, basically went to them and asked, went to the studio, brought his cameras, did an hour long interview in which they said, yeah, I mean, basically we're we're taking and making 4X DSD copies of the original master tapes. And that's what we're cutting our lacquers from. And then Michael Fremer and Michael Ludwigs, uh, also known as Michael 45, he's with 45 RPM Audiophile, mm-hmm. did a follow-up video to that, basically just nailing Michael Esposito to the wall for not nailing the guys at MoFi to the wall. They almost went so far as to calling for this guy's arrest. I mean, it was just the wow. biggest scandal in the world. But, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not much. But, man audio files well analog audio files i would say that's that whole world has just exploded in controversy over this now we should say um i'm not here to carry water for mofi i don't own Mm -hmm. any of their records because i don't even have a record player i'm a digital guy right but Mm. mofi has sort of for years now um been spelling out the steps in their production process yeah. But if this is true, they've been leaving out a step, this conversion to DSD, Forex DSD. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people are saying that that's dishonest. A lot of people are saying that doesn't matter because you guys have been raving about MoFi for years. And if it really made a difference, you would have heard it by now. Other people are saying, well, I did hear it. And I've been saying all along they're garbage and I can find no evidence for that. But it's just it's this big brouhaha that is. To me, uh, <laughs> again, a lot of opinions being thrown around that sort of miss the miss the point, in my opinion. But uh, our good friend Steve Guttenberg just weighed in this morning. Steve Guttenberg being one of the leading audio stars on YouTube. Absolutely. The audiophiliac. So Steve yes. chimed in with a video called Mobile Fidelity Sound Lab Vinyl, comma, oops, exclamation mark, um, where basically he's saying, yeah, these things sounded great yesterday. They sound great today. Why do we care? if they were ever digital. So mm-hmm. I've been yapping enough, man. What do you think about all of this? I think that th- these guys have a point because look, if the digital conversion is done right, there's not a chance at all that these people could pick it out in an ABX test because digital, if it's done right, is transparent. Okay. And there's a million mm-hmm. listening tests that have proven this. However, I understand the purest aspect of it and I think that's perfectly fine. If you, if you want to f- 
feel like, you know, this is absolutely pure. It's sort of like people that want to cook meat that's never been frozen. I mean, mm-hmm. it, you know, it might be better, but it's a lot of meat's frozen. And, you know, fish is, yeah. you know, mostly frozen at some point. Even high-end sushi is mostly frozen at some point. Um, so, it, it's, but I, but I understand that sentiment. And if they've been paying for these things in the expectation that they are pure analog and they're not, that's a giant, giant, giant problem. Whether or not they can hear the difference, which they probably can't. And Steve's right, you know. I I have not heard this particular the the releases in question, but I'm sure they sound great. I'm sure that you know the the quality of the sound you get is going to depend on your system and your setup, not on you know which slightly different, barely at all different version of a record that you listen to. Yeah, and yeah. So I I, I think I I also I want to point out this has nothing to do with music. Okay, this is more of a collector. Yes, sort of thing, and so mm-hmm. I, I I always say if you want to get closer to kind of blue, if you want to really dig deep into kind of blue, don't go buy some fancy release that sounds slightly different from other things you've heard. What you want to do is go buy a book called Kind of Blue, the Making of the Miles Davis Masterpiece by Ashley Kahn, who's a very famous jazz writer, and he digs really really deep into. All of the, the, you know, how Miles evolved to get to kind of blue and how it was made and how the different players reacted to it and all that kind of thing. You will have a deeper appreciation of kind of blue. No question about it. Whereas buying yet another copy of kind of blue that's barely any different will not give you more appreciation. And I also want to rant here and say I've read too many writers, you know, especially from the audiophile side who are not necessarily super hardcore music people i've read too many of them inaccurately describe you know the concept behind kind of blue is that it's you know modal playing right and Mm -hmm. modal jazz and i've read so many writers even leading jazz writers describe that inaccurately and i'm not being pedantic here because the concept is simple i understood this as a 16 17 year old guitar player and you know it's just not that hard if you've ever actually played jazz at all and, and you look at like iReal Pro, which is the the uh, the iOS and Android app that jazz players use to give them chord changes and things. Mm-hmm. You can look at these tunes in iReal Pro and go, oh, I get it. And mm-hmm. yet so many writers describe modal improvisation. They describe what they think is Miles is doing, but it's actually stuff that Charlie Parker and, and uh, Coleman Hawkins and people like that were doing. So Read this book if you want to get into kind of blue. All right, I'm off my soapbox. Well, you know, I'm I'm not a musician. I I play rhythm guitar very badly, so I'm not as into that aspect of it as you are. But I will say, to me, I realized a long time ago, and this is just me speaking personally for myself, that a lot of these audiophile re-releases, there's an emperor's new clothes aspect to it. Um, Yeah. Like most middle-aged white men, (laughs) I really like Steely Dan's Asia, right? Mm -hmm. And I have unfortunately spent stupid amounts of money on Japanese imports of Asia and SACD releases of Asia and all of this. And you know, when it comes right down to it, the absolute best sounding version of that album 
is like the 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 original recordings remastered version like i think it was the first version to ever come out on cd like it blows all of them away and it's just like that's just like the bog standard cd release from the 90s and it's the best it's got a little more impact it's got a little more dynamics you know it's just it overall sounds better it's a more pleasing sounding version but i'll say this even though i am not in that domain of the people who are buying these specific audiophile re-releases. There's one gentleman in particular who runs a channel dedicated to them. I would say his opinion on this whole MoFi gate kerfuffle mm-hmm. probably hit me harder than any of the rest. And really, he's, he's, a, you YouTube, he's, he's a YouTube user called Poetry on Plastic. His name mm-hmm. is Michael Johnson. Everybody's like, if you're apparently, if your name is not Michael, you have nothing to say about this. <laughs> you got Michael, it's, it's Esposito, Michael, Fremo, Michael, Olympics, Michael Johnson. But anyway, uh, poetry on plastic. So Michael all, Johnson. All, young, also, uh, all young people, y'all, all, all young would be vinyl experts that want to get on YouTube or write or something <laughs> like that. For step one, change your name to Michael. <laughs> yeah although this kid's like 12 or something like that he writes for audiophilia um but okay. um he had a really really good summation of all of this and the story that he led off with was uh, about beethoven and mm-hmm. how a lot of people sort of mistakenly thought that he was a von and not a van and that was at the time that was a very big difference right if your last name was van something well that meant one thing if your name was von something well that meant you were probably aristocratic or you you know you came from money or something like that so beethoven just let people think that his name was von Beethoven, even though it was van Beethoven, which, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it would be kind of like if I, if, if, if in the course of this podcast, I kept claiming that, you know, Jacko Pastorius was your dad and you never corrected me on it. Right. In that case, <laughs> you're kind of, you're kind of letting people think Jacko's your dad. And he made the point. That's kind of what mobile fidelity is doing here. They've never claimed that digital was not part of their process. Yeah, But all of the other people who've read their literature, they did nothing to correct them. Furthermore, yeah, so they're, so they're dead in the water as far as I'm concerned, because like they could have come out and made a case and said, hey, we're doing this as a process and we're doing it this yeah. way with the utmost of care. And here is the technical reason why we're doing it and blah, 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 blah. And we think this will actually give you better fidelity than running an old tape that's been baked a thousand times and is falling yeah. apart. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm a Corvette guy and, and like for Corvette guys, matching numbers cars are just like the Holy grail. Mm-hmm. You know, if the number stamped on the engine matches the number stamped on the frame, well, that's a matching numbers car. Right. And mm-hmm. you know, that is, you're going to pay a lot more for that. Even if it's, you know, if you took an identical engine from another car made the exact same year and put it in, you know, a different Corvette of the same year, all of a sudden the value of that car drops immensely. And when yeah. you've got people paying $2,500, $3,000 for, for a pressing of MoFi's Abraxas, based on the mistaken belief that every step of its production was analog, that that like literally the, the lacquer was made from the master tapes, and they can't do that again without great expense or without degradation of the master tapes. And yeah. so therefore... Yeah, I'll pay twenty five hundred bucks for this record pressing. Well, big problem. I th- yeah, I think that person. Look, you could argue all you want about the validity of paying twenty five hundred bucks, three thousand bucks for a record, but I think we all have to agree 
the person who did bought that record under false pretenses. So, yeah. Yeah. So let's uh, let's move on and play some kooky music for a couple of minutes and get back to the topic of the <laughs> monitor audio speakers that I want to talk so much about. That sounds great, man. All right. See you in a minute. This is the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast. I'm Brent Butterworth. And I'm Dennis Berger. And so we're going to talk about a topic that uh, that came about because I was reading uh, Stereophile Magazine, publishes a lot of their old reviews, you know, republishes them. And they just republished one that was uh, from 1991, and it's of the Monitor Audio Studio 20 loudspeaker. And I looked at this by uh, Robert Harley, who used to write for uh, Stereophile, now is an absolute sound editor. And I looked at this and I just thought, huh, I wonder. And I was a Stereophile reader at the time. I, I would have read this review in its original version. And I thought, like, I wonder what this was like back then. And I wonder, you know, back then I really didn't know much about speakers. And I wonder, like, I wonder how what my reaction to this would be now, now that I, you know, know a lot about speakers, if I do say so myself. But let me see what this looks like. And I was looking at this and I was completely shocked by a zillion trillion things in this. And it just, it shows just how, how much speakers have changed in the last, you know, 30 uh, some odd years since then. It's just shocking how, I mean, look, Monitor Audio is a great brand. Monitor Audio has been one of my favorite brands for a long time. If you go buy their new stuff, I mean, I've been recommending their stuff for a couple of decades now. And because it's just straight, it's nice stuff, straightforward engineering, no nonsense. That's why it was shocking to me to see this, because this is not that. This was Mm -hmm. done before... All that, you know, uh, before most of that uh, National Resource Council uh, research came out of Canada, before the before all those guys went to Harmon, not all those guys, a couple of those guys went to Harmon and completed that research and presented it all and codified it. And back then, people didn't know a lot about how speakers work or what they were supposed to do. And they also tended to follow fads. Mm-hmm. So this thing is a it's a floor standing speaker. It has a six and a half inch woofer and a one inch tweeter. Now, weirdly, and this is the part I still can't un- understand. It's forty five hundred bucks a pair, which is yeah. close to close to ten thousand dollars in today's dollars. And you, and know, we, you can go put, buy. Let's put that in perspective, by the way, because one yeah. of the absolute finest loudspeakers that I heard last year in twenty twenty one was the Monitor Audio Silver three hundred seven G. Okay. Um, I, 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 we always joke about, oh gosh, it was so hard. Look, no, my heart broke when I boxed these things back up and sent them back and they're 1300 a piece. So 2,600, yeah. you could buy, you could buy four of those <laughs> like for the cost of the, of yeah, the, that's like um, a, th- that's a three-way speaker, right? 
that is a three-way speaker yes and yeah. it is this is just a two-way not only one of the finest speakers i've heard in recent years also just one of the most beautifully built i mean just just the fit and finish on this thing the feet the construction of the surrounds it just everything about it just screamed luxury and it's thirteen hundred dollars yeah. so yes yeah made in china right i assume i yeah probably have to be have um, to be this is made in, now granted these are made in england which of course cost more but uh and you know chinese manufacturing was really in its infancy 30 years ago mm-hmm. so but these are just a six and a half inch woofer and a one inch tweeter and that's great that's a perfectly fine design it's a perfectly fine configuration except then you go to look at the crossover on these things and the crossover is a first order crossover that means 6 db per octave you know, is is filtered. In other words, you 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 know, to do a crossover with a two two way speaker, you filter the lows out of the tweeter and the highs out of the woofer, right? Mm-hmm. So they do it at sixty b per octave, and that was a big fad back in the early nineties. That was kind of driven by the success of Teal and Vandersteen. However, there were a lot of problems with first order crossovers, which uh, you know. Teal and Vandersteen wrangle with to to varying degrees of success, but you know you you don't see a lot of speakers now that have first order crossovers. People have abandoned mm-hmm. that for really good reason. So this thing has a first order crossover. I'll, I'll kind of get into why this is a problem. It has a first order crossover at three point two kilohertz, right? Mm-hmm. So here's your problem. It's got a six and a half inch woofer, right? Now now I should say you in a in a first order in any kind of crossover with a, a two way speaker. You want to have the crossover point high enough to where the tweeter doesn't get a lot of bass and the tweeter doesn't start to distort or fry. Mm -hmm. And you also want to have the crossover point low enough to where the woofer doesn't start to beam. Mm -hmm. Because as, as the frequency of sound goes up, the speaker becomes more directional. And that's a function of the size of the speaker. So... This is a six and a half inch woofer, which means it has a five and a five point five inch radiating area, which means it's going to start to beam if you you know divide the speed of sound in inches by five point five. You get um, two point five kilohertz, so it's going to start beaming at two point five kilohertz, which means in the vocal, the top end of the vocal range, it's going to start to sound like this, right? Which we call cupped mm-hmm. hands coloration. Okay, so mm-hmm. boy, um, so you know. This thing's beaming at 2.5, but it's crossed over at 3.2. That's not going to sound good. There's and in the measurements that John Atkinson did 30 years ago, um, but still fine. He still uses mostly the same gear today. Um, you can see the problems in the crossover, and he talks about that. And also with the first order speaker like this, the people do it because it's phase correct, right? The woofer is in phase with the tweeter. And that, you know, it's still, uh, I'm not aware of any research that suggests that that's better somehow. Personally, though, having heard a lot of those speakers, I do think they have kind of a nice sense of spaciousness to them and like a little more of a wraparound effect, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, which I, th- I think is why Teals and Vanderstein's were popular in their day. And so... Anyway, but the problem is you only get that effect if your ear is at the same distance from the tweeter and the woofer, which 
that's why Teals and Vandersteens had tilted back baffles, right? The, 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 yeah. the drivers were aligned on the vertical plane. Whereas with this, the drivers are on a flat baffle, which means, you know, the, the radiating area of the woofer is at the center of the cone of the woofer. Whereas the tweeter right, they're, is they're recommending like a two really inches in front chair. of it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you're going to have to sit on the ground for this thing to line up <laughs> phase wise. So it's just a, it's just a terrible, it's like nobody would design a speaker like this, but the fact that this was a big, this was a really good, respectable brand designing a speaker that, that really was, we would look at the speaker today and go, this is a mess. And uh, now it's still got a good review and they talk about how the sound staging was really good. And I guess they're kind of, Hey, look, man, it's 30 years ago. There weren't that many. Well, good yeah, I mean, they were, they were writing then. in the context of what else was available. Yeah, sure. Yeah, of what else was available back then. And, you know, and I'm the first order thing, like I said, does, I think, do some nice things sound staging wise. But this thing has major colorations in the vocals. And if you think I, oh, I need to hear that, well, no, I don't. Mm. Because if you know how speakers work, you know, my friend Vance Dickerson, who wrote the loudspeaker design cookbook and has designed a trillion zillion loudspeakers for all kinds of different people. Um, you know, as he told me, he's like, I can just look at the driver layout and the crossover specs and tell you what a speaker's going to do. And anybody who's done speaker measurements a lot, I, I could do that. Anybody else who's done a lot of speaker measurements can do that as well. So, you know, you don't have to hear everything. You, you can draw conclusions just by reading this review. I, it's like I knew, and then I looked at the measurements, I knew that what they were going to look like. Yeah. So, but anyway, I just think it's remarkable that, you know, if you look at things like amplifiers, you know, amplifiers from the, you know, 70s, 80s, still, you know, old Krells are revered, you know, old, you know, uh, uh, audio research amps are revered. I mean, old Comrade Johnson's, they still work fine. They still sound great. Mm -hmm. But the speakers from back then, man, there weren't a lot of good speakers back then. Even from a really great brand like this, they were struggling to figure out how to make a good loudspeaker. Now, this would be yeah, a great loudspeaker if you put a real crossover in it. Mm -hmm. I think so, one of the surprising, the biggest surprises for me was just the the level of resonance in the tweeter. I mean, it's, it's astounding. It's like, how did they how did they not hear that even given given the other limitations of the time, you know? <laughs> well maybe that's what they heard because sometimes resonance if it's if it's in the right place sometimes resonance can make stuff sound more spacious i mean we see this with my headphone measurements on soundstagesolo.com where mm -hmm. a lot of these planar magnetic headphones have have a lot of resonances in the upper mid-range and lower treble and that mm -hmm. seems to make them sound more spacious. Interesting. Because it kind of adds a hash to it. Yeah. That is kind of similar to the hash that you'd experience if sound was bouncing around your room and reflecting off all kinds of stuff. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's a really yeah. good point. So sometimes that can do... And I think that's probably what they were hearing because they compared these things to some really good speakers uh you know hales research which uh paul hales is still a good buddy of ours who does fantastic mm -hmm. speakers and um what else do they compare it to uh i can't remember one of the leading ones at the time but uh oh mirage m1s which I, oh those were so great there were big giant tower speakers that were bipolar that had 
speakers on the oh, front yeah. and the back. So let's uh, let's move on to our last topic, which is going to be <laughs> our last topic. It's going to be a discussion by James Hale about the the iFi Audio Zen One Signature DAC, which is a DAC I know very well. So. I'm excited cool. about that. But Looking before we get it. there, I wanted to say thank you for something. Thank you for turning me on to the fact that Stereophile is is pulling these old reviews out of the vault and publishing them on the web because I didn't I didn't realize that. And uh, like this is super cool to me. I, this is this is neat. This is a history lesson, and I'm I'm glad they're doing it. So thank you for bringing it to my attention. Stuff and and you know kudos to them for just publishing these things and. You know, hey, look, we all get better at what we do, and they're publishing these things, you know, with all the flaws and everything in them, and, you know, uh, standing by what they did. So, yeah. good for them. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. All right, let's listen to some groovy tunes, and we'll be right back. to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast. I'm Dennis Berger. And I'm Brent Butterworth. And in our final segment today, we are going to dig into a piece from Soundstage Experience. Uh, it is the uh, is James Hale's uh, Art and Tech column. And um, this month, he has a column called the iFi Audio Zen 1 Signature and Go Bar. Open the door to Charles Lloyd's Chapel. So one of the two products that he's talking about in the headline, the Zen One Signature DAC, is a DAC that I recently reviewed on um, Soundstage Access. And mm -hmm. um, so after I did that review, James got a, a unit. He didn't get the one that I reviewed because I bought the one that I reviewed, but he got one Ooh. and sort of, you know, yeah, did uh, did an exploration of that DAC and sort of talking about his experience with it, listening to this Charles Lloyd album. Mm -hmm. But I thought it was really, I thought it was interesting. It's, you know, the weird thing is it's, um, <laughs> there's a phenomenon called sort of the zeal of the recent convert and um mm -hmm. i've become i've become so enamored with iFi mostly as a result of this DAC that i was just excited to see somebody else excited about it too <laughs> so that's why i was sort of drawn to it but um what um what stood out to you most about this about this piece so to me i i I, I don't know. I guess I, I look at, I'm kind of, it's kind of cool that this thing is 329 and <clears throat> there's so yeah. many DACs out there that are a gazillion dollars. And yet this actually has more features than a lot of more expensive DACs, including Bluetooth. So you can Bluetooth into mm -hmm. it and then use this as a Bluetooth uh, uh, adapter for your high-end stereo system. Mm-hmm. To me, what's special about it is, you know, iFi makes the claim that, like, this is the only DAC you really need, right? Like, well, I think they're, what their claim is, is why would you need any more than this DAC? Mm -hmm. I think I kind of agree with that. I have put this DAC against sort of the DACs built into some you know, $6,000 gear. Mm -hmm. I couldn't hear any difference. It's got a lot of format support. 
it's got Bluetooth built in, which is really cool. It's just kind of if you need to get a digital signal, be it, you know, wired or wireless into a component, why wouldn't you have this thing? And and ultimately, that's sort of what prompted me to buy the thing after I did this big column. And after you and I did an entire podcast about why would you buy a standalone DAC? Well, <laughs> I think a lot of the reason for that skepticism was a lot of standalone DACs don't do this much for this little money, and they don't sound any yeah. better than the DACs built into your gear. This one, you know, just kind of does everything you could want it to, could want it to, including some things I don't want it to do, like MQA, mm-hmm. but it's 329 bucks. So now, you know, I've got more leeway to review all analog pieces of gear without jumping through hoops to get a digital signal to it. Cause I don't, I don't have a lot of analog sources, you know, but I, but I don't want that to yeah. keep me from being able to review, you know, uh, an integrated amp that only has analog inputs. Well, add this sure. thing to it and you've got all the digital connectivity you could need. And so did you use the Bluetooth and was that cool? I've used the Bluetooth I mean, a lot and the Bluetooth sounds sound amazing good? to, that sounds fantastic. That sounds great. In fact, I for another publication, I recently did a roundup of Bluetooth receivers, and I used this as my reference. Right, um, mm-hmm. and what's interesting is <laughs> the the only other Bluetooth receivers that kept up with it were also ones from iFi. So, uh, I, one of them, uh, oh, the wow. Zen Blue V2 or something like that, it's like 180 mm-hmm. bucks. I could not get far enough away from my house to where I would lose the signal without going completely off my property so wow just building some really really cool stuff yeah like my stereo listening room is all the way at the front end of my house i could go all the way to the back corner of my backyard with my phone connected via bluetooth to this thing and it's still brocking it's still playing it's not skipping a beat so that's pretty amazing so so that so the application for that is if you're wife is listening to music off of your phone <laughs> then and you go off and mow the lawn you don't have to leave your phone where yeah. your wife can like get your phone and start looking through your phone to me the more is that, practical is that the killer app for you know this sort of long-range bluetooth <laughs> i can't think of another you know reason to me, a more practical application would just be a, a receiver with that much signal strength is probably going to be less susceptible to noise from microwave ovens and refrigerators and things like that, which it turns out in the course of my testing of Bluetooth receivers was like more of a, an impediment on any like like a lot of these receivers. I couldn't walk past my refrigerator without the signal dropping out. So yeah. so I'm going to say, wow. yeah, the, the advantages of having well, my refrigerator's got Wi-Fi built in. So so yeah, I'm going to say the advantage of having that much Bluetooth range is just you, you're less worried about interference and things like that. Oh, so. and I I gotta say this thing has like every Bluetooth codec mm-hmm. I can think of yep. in it, including like the really high resolution ones like Aptex yeah. HD and LDAC. Mm-hmm. So you can get really, really, really high quality streaming from this on bluetooth off of your phone no matter what and your phone is basically <laughs> yeah yeah so. no matter what kind of phone you have it's adaptive it, you know, it's got some of this stuff in it probably yeah and that's kind of cool and and this is we should say also this is a little tiny doohickey this is what 
five and a half inches wide or something like that. Something like that. It's, I mean, you could hold it in the palm of your hand easily. Yeah. Yeah. So, but by the way, I wanted to say in addition to LDAC, it's got some of the, the even kookier and rarer codecs like the, uh, uh, LHDC. It could do that too. So, yeah, but then the, but then the Chinese government knows what you're listening to. (laughs) If I have Bluetooth. Yeah. Don't you know that? Oh, I did not know man, that. Man, you got to get pl- you got to get plugged into what's really going on out there, Dennis. <sighs> man, I'm just worried about whether Mofi is using DSD in their production process. I can't be bothered <laughs> with all the rest of this crap. <laughs> it's, it's, it's too much, man. But it's, you don't even have a turntable, for God's sake. I have a turntable. <sighs> And it doesn't bother yeah. me. You know, the funny thing is I don't have a turntable, but I have some albums just because I love the big artwork and the liner notes and stuff. So I've got some records. I just don't have anything to play them on because, eh, hell, I'm just going to stream it anyway. It's going to sound better. Oh, we got to do that, man. Man, I just I love the big cover art. I love the gatefold and opening them up and seeing the lyrics and all the art at full scale. I just, yeah, I buy records and then I, <laughs> then I use the, the digital code that comes with them. Oh, see, I, see, I, I do buy records and not, not, not yeah. a ton, but you know, I, bu- but I don't buy them because it's the new, you know, the, the 10, three issue of some album that I love. I buy it because maybe it's an artist like, uh, you know, like a jazz artist that I want to support and Mm-hmm. And they'll do a lot of jazz artists will do vinyl releases now, which for a jazz artist and a jazz label is a big commitment. You know, that's it's several oh, yeah. thousand dollars to do a, a reasonable, you know, with the mastering job, which is going to be a couple thousand bucks at least, maybe more. And all the pressing and all that kind of stuff, even for a small quantity, you're, you're looking at five to ten thousand bucks pretty easily. And I know it can be done cheaper, but uh mm-hmm. Not at not at a level of quality that a major jazz artist is going to want to do. So you're talking five to ten thousand bucks. So that's a a pretty substantial financial gamble for these people. And so I like to support them. And it also just makes it more special to own it on vinyl, and more special to play it. Yeah, you know, than streaming it off Spotify. There is something to be said for the the ritual of physical media. And I wrote about this for an article last year, or something like that. You know, I buy the the only discs I really buy anymore are the um the limited edition releases that grateful dead puts out you know they put out a box set every year and then they have their quarterly releases and things like that and i buy those but for me like i mean i'm just thinking back to a few years ago the the um the may 1977 box set that they put out all of these cds each individually wrapped and everything and just the the process of opening all of that up and ritually yeah. putting the disc into the tray and closing it and pressing play that was a huge part of the experience for me so i'm not going to poo-poo anybody who's still into physical media because there is something sort of meditative about it that i think is really really cool it's just i'm just not into vinyl it's i don't have anything against it i'm just not into it so well you know I've, i got to review uh uh one of my tasks for the coming months is to review these little all-in-one record players that are you know typically 50 to maybe 200 bucks so uh maybe i'll send you one Mm -hmm. of those then you can play your vinyl i mean i think you know for i mean you're a dead fan so what's it really matter (laughs) wait a minute we're gonna have to unpack that what do you mean what does it yeah well it's almost the same wait 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 wait, like uh sugar magnolia i go i goes something blah blah that's exactly how that goes but you know hey so much of the dad's 
best <laughs> output is like it wasn't studio albums. And yeah, they're not going to take a lot of, I mean, some of their live stuff they do put out on vinyl, but certainly nowhere near the majority of it. So, so in yeah. a way, despite your derision, you're kind of right. I'm a dead fan. So why does it matter? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you were accidentally correct, sir. All right. Hey, let's wrap this thing up, man. All right, then. You want to do some credits? I do. And we have an extra special credit to give because last episode, we kind of threw it out to listeners to suggest the name for, since we don't always know if Dennis or I is going to do the actual production, we thought maybe we'll just come up with a name, kind of like like Macklin Music or something like that, that would just imply both of us. So listener Carnell Greer... Uh, contacted us just this morning and suggested that we say podcast mixed by Butter Burger Productions. And so we're <laughs> going to go with that since that yeah, way he, we don't have to say who's actually doing the mixing. Yeah, he texted me the same and he said we should probably check with Culver's first. I, do you know what Culver's is? I don't. I, uh, okay. I'm i Googling it now. Oh, it is a... Yeah. Uh, it's a fast food chain in the Midwest. Oh. oh, they're oh wait. So it's a burger joint housed in Wisconsin. What the heck do Yankees know about making burgers? I don't care to check with them. So we're just gonna go with it. We're butter burger now. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> butter burger productions. <laughs> yes. And um with uh I think we're gonna use some of my own musical compositions this time. To okay. avoid any possible copyright, whatever. Yeah. And, um, yeah. We should say that we're part of the Soundstage Network. Um, yeah. Anything else? Um, that's all. Anybody else yeah. need to give a shout out to? We, we should. We should do a little bit of housekeeping real quick, by the way. We should say that if you're listening to us on YouTube, you're a couple of weeks behind. So uh, Doug, our founder and publisher, um, posts uh, new episodes on all of your podcatchers of choice and also at soundstage.life. But when a new episode comes out, he takes an old episode and publishes it on YouTube for the people who don't do, you know, podcasting any other way. So if you're seeing a new episode on YouTube right now, just know that you're you know a couple of weeks behind it there's an even newer episode on spotify and itunes and all of the other places like that so yeah so you can get your fix like right after you listen to this one you can get your fix with another new one. Oh yeah man but then like you're gonna you're... but yeah but then you're gonna have to deal but once you but then you have the colossal letdown of like then you gotta wait another week <laughs> yeah well it's the time traveler's paradox that's two what weeks. that means two right? weeks it's every two weeks yeah you gotta wait two weeks this is worse than like netflix or something although i have to say we might not make that two week next time because i've got pretty massive surgery coming up so i don't know quite when we're going to be able to record again but it will be as soon as i am physically capable okay everybody wish dennis well thanks so. and we'll see you right. uh yeah whenever that is in a few weeks i guess Okay. Bye. Bye.